you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, the book of Ephesians. So we are in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians. We're kind of going through it chapter by chapter, and in some instances, of course, verse by verse. And this is um, important for us because it really gives us a connecting point throughout an entire uh, account of what God is saying to the church, not only in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, but in Jefferson in this century that we live in this year. And so today we're looking at uh, part four, connecting blessings. We're going to talk about connection. Now in the book of Ephesians, the Holy Spirit is using the Apostle Paul to write to this church at Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. And this was um, um, a unique church and yet somewhat not unique in the time period that is, this is being written. Because, as you know, uh, Jesus, uh, being Jewish, and he came to really minister to the, the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel, Jewish people, and all other people, Gentiles, really kind of tolerated each other. There was a real separation there. And so the, the Jewish people were like, the Messiah, whenever he comes, he's coming for us. And the Gentiles were going, the Messiah, whenever he comes, is coming for them. <laughs> this, this separation. And so what God did and what he does so many times and so wonderfully is just kind of blew everyone's mind because, yes, Jesus came for the Jews and those were the first to become Christians, if you will. But then there's this thing happened with the apostle Peter at Cornelius's house, a Gentile in which the Holy Spirit was just poured out on this guy's family and all of his servants, everybody that was there, and they all got saved. And all of a sudden, the Jewish people are going like, wait a minute. We thought it was for us only, and now God has opened the door of salvation and blessing and union and heaven, even to the Gentiles. So now they've got to say, okay, We've been separated, now God's bringing us together, but that's weird. It's awkward. We have customs and things we eat and don't eat. Gentiles have customs and things they eat and don't eat, and somehow we've got to blend this together. And so the church at Ephesus is in the process of doing that, and it's a little... Ah, you know, I mean, no, you don't know because you love everybody. You don't have any problems with anybody, but they were having problems back then. So they're trying to figure out how to do this. And in the book of Ephesians, we find that the Holy Spirit is writing to them. And, and if you read the whole book, you see kind of a flow back and forth. There's, there's sections where he says, this is the way the world is full of greed or sin or lust or sexuality that's impure. And you guys used to live that way. He says, but now Christ has redeemed you and you're saved. And now you're a part of the family of God. And now you have love. And, and these are the things that God has for you in your future. This is what God's wanting you to go toward. And then he comes right back and he says, you remember the, the world and the way you were in the world, but now you're saved. But hey, this is what God, and you see this flow back and forth through the whole book of Ephesians. The world, you used to be in it, now you're not in it, and this is where God's taking you. So last week, we looked at chapter number four and verses 11 through 16. 
He says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the pastors for the equipping of God's saints. We're going to be built up in love and unity, strengthened by what every person provides. Amazing. God's doing amazing things. And then the next verse, he goes right back and says, you remember that world and the way they operate? You guys were in it. Now you're not. Well, let's read this section, and we're going to kind of walk through it verse by verse. And so we're in Ephesians chapter number 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, verse number 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, we're going to take a pause right there, and we're going to look at verse number 18 for just a second. We're going to reread it, and then we're going to kind of look at it backwards. We're going to kind of read it backwards. Let's read it forwards, and one more time, verse 18. They, the people who are living in the world, sinful, it says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, let's look at it backwards. They have hardened hearts. They are ignorant. Ignorant just means you don't know. Because of the hardening of their heart, they're ignorant. It was kind of like a kid in math class who is sitting there and he just goes, no, I'm not listening. I'm not paying attention. I'm not going to read the book. I'm not going to listen. No, no way. He hardens his heart. So now he's ignorant on the day of the test. So they harden their hearts. They're ignorant. They're separated from God and they're darkened. They're walking and living in darkness. Okay, verse number 19. This helps us to know and understand verse number 19. Having lost all sensitivity. That word sensitivity talks about a callus. It talks about that, you know, calluses are something that come over time. A blister comes real quick, doesn't it? And then it peels off. That just makes you cringe, doesn't it? But a callus is because of time. He says they've lost all sensitivity. They're calloused. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. It says they are calloused, the callous of the heart. The, the Bible talks many times about the, the hardening of the heart or the stiffening of the neck. It's two ways of illustrating that a person is not interested in serving God. They're not interested in submitting to God or being obedient to God or doing anything connected with God. It's the hardening of the heart or the stiffening of the neck is another way of saying it. That callousness of the heart. A callous doesn't just happen. It happens over time and it slowly gets thicker and thicker and harder, more difficult to penetrate. And a callous is something where you do lose your sensitivity. And that's what's happened. It's because of a, a constant rejection of God. It's like God is trying to put his word into people or his love. He's trying to show them. And what do they do? They just deflect it and push it back. No, don't, no. I don't want that in my heart. And, and they, 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 it's like they grab it and they just deflect it. And because of that constant deflecting, because of that constant pushing back, 
Their hearts over time have become hardened. There's a callous there. It's a constant rubbing. It's a constant rejection. You know, some of you uh, parents, you've got little kids, you know, really small, toddlers, and it's embarrassing. You know, I don't know why, but it is when your little one throws a temper tantrum because it's always at an inopportune time, right? At church, at the mall, wherever. And, at the, and you might go, wow, man, I, that's really embarrassing. What am I going to do with that? I, I'll just submit something to you that there's, there's two different ways children respond. One is, well, there's more than two, but we're just going to talk about two. One is throw yourself down on the ground, pitch ten per chance, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's got an issues right there. This kid's trying to figure it out. You know, how do I deal with this? How do I, how do I handle these emotions? What's going on? But there's an, another way some children deal with it, and they will stand there and look you in the eyeballs and say, no. I submit to you, that one's easier than this one. Okay? Because this one's trying to figure it out. This one says, I'm in charge. You're just lucky I let you live in the house. That's the tough one to deal with. You're going to spend a lot of time on your knees in fasting and prayer. You're going to become well acquainted with fasting because that is the start the hardening of the heart where they become calloused. What do you do to keep a kid from becoming calloused? I would say keep them in the atmosphere of the body of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, where God can just continuously show them His grace, His mercy, His love, His plan, His blessings, all of His goodness. The children left to themselves where they're not brought into the body of Christ and they're not caused to come to children's ministry and youth ministry and part of a life group and whatever is happening, it can become easier for them to just become calloused. That's a tough one to deal with. Well, that's what he's saying here is that these people who have rejected God have calloused their hearts. We see, we see a couple of Old Testament examples of it. I'll go through pretty quickly. One is Noah. Remember, the Noah builds the big boat, the animals, the whole, the flood, the whole thing. Well, you know, here's Noah. God speaks to him and says, do this, build this big boat. And the Bible's interesting. It says God is observing the people of Noah's time period, that society. And he has a, a very um, statement of indictment against them. He says, every thought of their heart was only evil continuously. You hear the redundancy? Every thought, always, continuously, evil. It was continuous. And so here, Noah builds a boat. He builds a boat for 120 years. It's a big boat. 120 years. And 2 Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You see, while he's building that boat, while he's putting that all together, he is preaching about God's mercy. Yes, there's destruction coming. Absolutely. But he's preaching about God's mercy because he's saying there is room. There's a place. And what did the people do? No. No, Noah. No, God. No, I don't have anything to do with that. And so when the flood did come, could they blame Noah? And more importantly, could they blame God? Young people, let me talk to you for a moment. This is a big argument in, in 
many people today, and that is, well, yeah, you talk to me about Jesus. Isn't that the God in the Old Testament that caught, just told people to wipe another city out and kill everyone? That doesn't sound like love to me. But we're getting a little deep here, aren't we? Well, what about that? Let's take a look at that. Let's have an answer for that. That's true. God has told the Israelite people in the Old Testament, yeah, wipe them out. Yes, he does. He did. Yes. Let's take a look at Jericho. Remember the city of Jericho? Here's um, uh, the Israel has been freed from slavery. They've spent 400 years in slavery. Now they're free. They spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering, so to speak. And now they're crossing into the land that God promised them. And there's Jericho, the first city. Pretty massive. It's got a big wall around it. It's huge. All that stuff. There's something interesting that happens. Uh, Joshua is now the leader of Israel, and he sends two spies into Jericho to spy it out. Very common practice. That's what he does. Spend, sends two spies in there, and they go to a woman's house named Rahab. Now, the Bible uh, tells us very little about this woman other than she was a prostitute. And so they go to her, and she hides them. She says, okay, because you, you, they're looking for you. They, somebody knows you're here, so she hides them. But here's what she says about Israel. Very interesting. He says, um, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you, because of you Israelites. He says, we, she says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Shihon and Og, the two kings of the Ammonites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. The people in Jericho knew that the Israelites served the true God, that he was God in heaven and God on the earth, that he performs miracles for them. They know that. And guess what they decided to do? Fight against him. We're going to fight against him. God in his mercy tells Israel, okay, on day one, circle the city one time. Day two, do the same thing. For six days, they circle the city one time. On the seventh day, they circled the city seven times. What do you think God's doing? God is trying to tell them every day, it's coming. It's coming. What are you going to do? It's coming. Anybody ever heard of a white flag? Anybody ever heard like, hey, dude, you, you've got God and God's got you and we don't. We surrender. We bow down. We will serve you. We will serve your God. We will come to your table. We will come to your way. Instead, they said, no. For six days, no. Seventh day, no. They weren't saying no to Israel. They were saying no to God. So when destruction comes on them, is it God's fault? Is it Israel's fault? I share with you, there is a destruction coming. And God keeps sending out messengers saying, hey, there's a way, there's a way. It's Christ. Christ is the way. Christ is the way. And those who will harden their heart against God will have no one to blame except themselves. 
But the time for remedying that is today. The time of getting out of that situation is today because God can change a calloused, hardened heart in a moment, just like that. And someone says, God, I'm sorry, and I want to go your way. Then God says, come on, and suddenly that heart changes. The Bible says it's like taking a heart of stone out of us and giving us that soft, pliable heart that is eager to serve the Lord. And that's what he does. You know, what's interesting, what's great is that the word here doesn't say that they are stuck with a calloused heart, that they will forever have a calloused heart. It just says that's what they have right now. This is the condition of them right now. But there can be a change. And that's what we're going to read next. So let's keep reading and move on to verse number 20. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind and put on the new self, the new self. That's what God wants to do created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he says there's the old way, now there's the new way of living. He says you heard the gospel and you were taught the gospel, how God has given you a new life and he's causing you to grow into an image of Christ. That's God's plan. We're to give up the old and receive the new. That's really what discipleship is all about. Now, there's a lot of descriptions of discipleship, and they're all valid and good, but if you just boil it down to what is really happening, not the process, but what is happening is discipleship is about giving up the old and receiving the new. I'm going to give up my old way of living, all my old habits, and I'm going to receive new. And sometimes it happens in just that direction. I'm going to give this up, and for a while, there's kind of a little void there, and you're, you kind of feel funny because you're not doing that anymore, but you're not sure what to do. And then the newness comes, and you're like, oh, okay, great. Sometimes it's the new that comes, and, and God brings a, a new freshness into your life, and then you're kind of conflicted because you're like, I'm, I got the old way and the new way, and you got to make a decision, let that go. That's discipleship. That's growth. And I don't care how long you've been serving God, we're all in that process. We're all saying, I, I don't need to do that anymore. God, thank you for the new way of life that you've given me. You know, the most um, miserable Christians are the ones who receive from God, but just won't let go of the old. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Oh, no, I know. It. Thank you, Lord. Some, oh, no, no. Yeah. yeah thank, thank you so much. Oh, no. Thank you, Lord. And what happens is they become lukewarm. God said in, in Revelation, he said, better to be red hot on fire for me or ice cold toward me, but don't get caught in the middle. Don't receive my blessings and hold on to the old way of life. It causes you to become lukewarm. He has a very strict, uh, uh, vibrant description of what happens. I'll leave it at that. We got to get rid of the old and come in with the new. 
Well, let's keep reading verses 25 through 28, and we'll make some comments there, and then we'll, we'll end this. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Here we begin to see God's grace just working in the Ephesian church and in the Hope Crossings church today. And that is how we speak. We have the, the speech of grace. We have the, we have the speech of love and unity not, and correction. There's, it's not all flowers, you know. But we have a speech that is different than the speech we used to have. Now we have a speech of encouragement and uplifting and building one another up. We have the speech that says, hey, man, it's awesome, great. You're having a tough time? God's for you, man. It's okay. Oh, you're rejoicing? I'm going to rejoice with you. And so we speak with a, with a way that's seasoned with grace. And our speech, is, it becomes different than what it used to be, to where we would maybe talk bad about somebody or we'd talk behind their back. Or not. We stop doing that now that we're Christians because we recognize that doesn't build up and bring encouragement. Our speech is now seasoned with a great deal of grace. We're just saying we are one body. We recognize that bad speech is like yeast, you put a little bit of yeast into a lump of dough, and what happens? That yeast goes everywhere in that lump of dough. Bad speech is just like that. When you say something bad at your, in your family, when you say something bad with the people that you work with, when you say something bad at church, but I've got... Another statement, and that is, good speech is like yeast. It's contagious. It's contagious. And I th don't you think that's kind of what we have at Hope Crossings? I'm going to take the word kind of. We have that at Hope Crossings because we have good speech. And we realize that that's like yeast, and it just, it just goes everywhere. It permeates. And it creates a culture to say, hey, this is a place of encouragement. It's a place of strength. It's a, it's a place where we weep with one another and we rejoice with one another. This is a place where you're not going to be talked bad about. This is a place of unity because we speak well about one another. Are we perfect? No, but we're working on it. Okay? Amen, brother. That's good preaching. Way to go. That's great speech. Well, the second thing in, in, is the next verse there. Uh, verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, that's good news to some of you because you thought anger was sin. And you're like, I can be angry? Yes, you can. The King James actually says, be angry and, don't, and do not sin. The NIV says, in your anger, do not sin. They're both awesome both those ways of saying that. So first off, anger is not sinful because God gets angry. So if God does it, it's okay. The problem is what we do when we're angry, or it can be a problem. So first off, we need to own our anger. Have you ever heard someone say, I know no one in here has ever said this, but have you ever heard someone say, she makes me so mad He makes me, they make me. We got to stop that. We got to own our anger. We can't say, you made me. No, say, 
I am angry. And now I'm going to do something with it. That's where he's saying, don't sin. (laughs) Don't go too far. It's okay to be angry. Anger is actually good, but we can't go too far. Then he gives this instruction. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, resolve it. People who just stay angry, they're difficult to be around. Okay, y'all weren't ready for that. You thought I was going to be like spiritual or something. Oh, that is spiritual. They're difficult to be around. People are just constantly in anger. And God is saying, that's not what I want. Anger, yes, but then resolve it. Get it, get it over with. Talk to the person in love. Talk to the person straight. Deal with the issue. And then resolve it. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And then he says, don't give the devil a foothold. Well, we all know what a foothold is. That's like rock climbing, right? All you need is that little, little peg right there, and you can go up to the next height. He's saying that's, what the, that's how the devil tries to overcome your life, one foothold at a time. The devil doesn't try and come and just go, whoosh, get on top of you. He just goes, just let me, let, me, let me just put my foot right there and get a little higher, and I'll just freeze, and so they won't even know I'm here. And then one more foothold, and it's a insidious, slow conquer. He says, it comes through anger. We get riled up. We get mad. You've had things happen in your life. I've had things happen in my life. I haven't treated everybody perfectly, and people haven't treated me perfectly. We're all in that together, right? We're all in that together. There's some times I've rehearsed what some people have done to me. I know you're well beyond that in your spiritual maturity, and I appreciate you. And I just had to get to the point where I say, you know what? When I think about those things, I'm going to praise God because it helped shape and mold me into the man I am today, which hopefully is better than what I was then. So I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live in that anger. I'm just going get, to get it out. But this is where some people get stuck. And it's easy to get stuck there. And so that anger just comes back up again. It's the same old anger. It's the same old junk. And I think today God is wanting to set some people free. And even as we receive communion, I believe there's going to be strongholds that the enemy has developed inside of your life from that foothold that you provided. You got got to take ownership. I provided that foothold. Yeah, but that guy did something to me. Yeah, but you provided the foothold with continuous anger. You didn't resolve it. You provided the foothold. And now it's like saying, God, please set me free. I'm sorry. Please set me free from this. I don't, want, I don't want the devil getting into my life. I don't want the devil getting this foothold in there and overcoming me. Lord, just set me free. I believe that's going to happen today. And all of a sudden, the people that you've been angry about for all these years, maybe you're going to start looking at them with great compassion to say, wow, they're messed up. They're messed up. I feel sorry for them. I'm not mad at them anymore. So that's the transition that we go through. Well, let's, let's bring this to a conclusion. One more verse, verse number 28. He says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. There's a four-letter word for you. You need to teach your children that four-letter word and get rid of all the other ones. Okay. 
I wasn't planning on saying that, and I might regret that I just did. But anyway, it's out. It's out. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful, useful. I'm not going to go into that. Useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. We see generosity. You know, that, that everything has a purpose, everything has a reason. And so he says, uh, if, if you've been stealing, remember the old way of living, remember that, you used to be in that, now you're not. Now God is saying, this is, where, this is where I want you to be. You used to steal, now you're saved, now do the opposite and be generous and give. Just, just be generous and give a little bit bigger tip at the, at the Beef O'Brady's than you used to. Oh, let's not get too practical here, Chris. I mean, you know, you could have just left it in the ozone layer, you know, up there no, let's just, let's bring it down to reality. When's the last time you paid for somebody's lunch? When's the last time you just bought somebody something just and said, here? Or got it to them without them even knowing who you are? Generosity. We just give. We used to steal, now we give. Because Christ has changed our lives. He said, that's the way we're supposed to live. And it's the grace that God gives us to be generous. And so all of a sudden, we're just givers. We're just givers. We're givers. And that's how it works. 